James, our live episode is coming up. By the time we're recording now, it's coming up in about two weeks' time. This is the, the first time we've actually seen each other in person in about 10 years. How about that? Yeah, I've seen, I've seen uh, so many high-quality video streams of you over such a long period of time. I feel like I've got to watch you age, but by yeah. fade <laughs> proxy. And you've watched my gradual descent into madness in turn. But eh, in the same room at the same time, it's just it's almost unthinkable. How tall are you? I don't even remember. I just remember your, I remember your, your, your head sort of head butting against mine because we had the, the world's narrowest room. That Surely that wasn't uh, OH&S approved how it, many people they fit it, in that when, room. When you, when you had to, the last time you saw me, to, for you to get out of your desk, you had to get the chair and push it backwards into my chair to push me under the desk. And eventually- It was the only way. Eventually, we just got into a happy medium of shoving each other. Um Although I think I probably shoved you more. <laughs> <laughs> I, I tried to preempt. I'm like, oh, he's, he's, he's about to move. No, it's when the um, it was when the YouTube metal stopped. For the, I, I can hear that through the headphones. I'm like, oh, he's about to move. Yeah. I should probably shimmy across. Well, I mean, some things never change. I mean, I, I haven't listened to uh, a new a new heavy metal album on the on the YouTube's for uh, almost uh, almost 45 minutes now. Um, See. <laughs> lovely, lovely new um, album uh, on the on the channel. Uh, this is something that I thoroughly recommend to everyone, although you'll genuinely hate it. A new wave of old school thrash metal, yeah. um, which is a small YouTube channel, uh, largely highlighting um, c- countries you wouldn't normally think of as uh, as havens for, for music, but the the thrash revival for. Uh, in sort of South America in the last five to ten years has been very well covered by this is this channel. I'd probably have eight or nine of these. Any um, Colombian thrash metal? Am I being represented, my people? There's lots, actually. Um, the bands don't immediately come to mind because you have to understand, if I, this, with as many channels as I do, it, generally it's 20, 30 new albums a day, and I, I pick them just on the basis of... Uh, I've vaguely heard of that or lots of other people liked that or sometimes, sometimes things pop. And you see, yeah. uh, you know, the album's a few days old. Like there's one here that has 52,000 views in two weeks. So, you know, I'll probably spin that at some point in time because people seem to like it. They're voting with their feet. Yeah. Um, remind me, these are great names. Hell Crash, Proselytism, Leather Brigade, Blood Aside, Riffobia. Uh, <laughs> and you can always you can always tell, like, the, uh, the South America ones, I mean... Uh, because the, the English is slightly wrong. <laughs> and that's <laughs> that to the charm, though. And, and exactly. That's usually a good sign. Like, yeah, okay. Yeah. This is going to be Chilean. This is this is going to fucking tear my head off. I, I, I'm, I'm all, <laughs> a, all about this. Yeah. I mean, there's, yeah. there's one here called Abomination. Not Abomination. Abomination. I like that. Abomination. Um, and obviously, obviously, that's a pun if they actually mean it. Uh, that's, a, that's, a, that's a good thing. <laughs> But um, that that one's believe it or not, that one's from San Diego, which makes it reasonably oh. un- reasonably unusual. It's a chill city. I was there recently. The fresh metal does not immediately spring to mind. But the thing about the world, Daniel, is his grumpy shitheads everywhere, and uh, <laughs> I'm right there with them. Well, 
today we're not here to talk about thrash metal, although but, but we are here. <laughs> we, to, could. we are here to talk about we are here to talk about questionable behaviour, which I think makes thrash metal a reasonable introduction. That's a perfect segue, James. We're, we're talking about this uh, this this new paper which came out um, two days ago, and this is uh, published by Mark Rubin, and the title is "Questionable Metascience Practices." Open access paper. We'll post a link to it. And this is very interesting because uh, within the field of meta-science, uh, they take a close look at the practices of other people. But this paper is suggesting that um, meta-science itself also has to take a close look at its own practices. And uh, have a read for yourself. Um, it is a medium-ish size paper, so it shouldn't take too long. But we, um, Mark has done a, um, a great job of summarizing the, these 10 main points um, and this is in table one and in which Mark uh, summarizes questionable meta-science practices. And so we're going to have a talk through these practices and Mark um, gives a name to all of them. Some you'll be familiar with, others will need a bit more explanation um, and some, some recommended practices. So let's, let's, let's jump straight in, James. Um, the first one is this idea of rejecting or ignoring self-criticism. And this is the idea that some folks within the meta-science community um, simply reject or ignore any criticisms of meta-science or, or, or science reform. Um, have you, uh, I mean, I've seen a little bit of this and of where some people can become quite defensive if their work is challenged and other times... Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. Maybe I'm within the bubble too much to, to kind of see this, but do you see within the work that you've seen people becoming, re rejecting any critiques of their own meta-scientific work or ignoring any criticisms? Is, is, is this something which you think, oh, yeah, that's that that's a thing? Or did this surprise you seeing this in this table? It, it, makes, it makes me automatically think of the sort of pre-registration wars where I think is probably the- uh, the, the the largest like visible from it, the only example I can think of is visible from across the road of uh, people people arguing about whether or not this as a as a sort of an encapsulated area of reform is something that is useful in its own right whether or not it is consistent with the, the sort of day-to-day -day practice of science, whether it's consistent with the philosophy of science. Um, it's muddied. All of these issues are muddied because there's there's lots of, um, obviously there's lots of discussion around meta-science. Now, some of that's coming from people who are saying, hey, I've been doing everything in a dog shit fashion for a very long time. Stop interrupting. You just, you're just making my life difficult, right? And then some of it is practical criticism in terms of, well, it'd be nice to have everything, wouldn't it? I understand that that would be better, but we live in the real world, not your airy-fairy science methodology reform world, you silly fella. Um, and then, of course, there's criticism of the, of the practice itself in its own right for its own sort of encapsulated reasons. So... I, th I would sincerely hope, at least, that if you were serious about what it meant to 
criticize how practice was done and attempt to change it and propose alternatives that you would be quite comfortable with people taking a look at whatever you'd propose and going, don't do it that way. Or, or that isn't, that isn't able to be achieved. So I don't know. I'm not, I'm not really interested in the reflexive dismissal of criticism of meta science. It seems completely antithetical to the whole project of being able to make stuff better. Mm. You know, so it's possible that over a period of years, people overreacting to uh, people overreacting to criticism is something that I ignored completely, on the basis of well, there's an obvious error in the goose gander continuum here, sunshine. <laughs> read the read the criticism, respond to it seriously, have a good time. No one's coming around to your house to shit in your mailbox. Everything's okay, right? Read what you're supposed to have done wrong and see how you feel about it. The same thing that you expect from literally everyone else. There's been some discussion here that this automatic reflexive defensiveness of meta-science practices comes from this idea that initially the meta-science movement, they had to be defensive because you'd have fuddy-duddies going, you're killing science, and you have to defend yourself against that. And people are suggesting, well, this sort of, this, this sort of approach has continued despite the fact that these practices are becoming more normalized that this reflex has continued i'm not so sure about that but the other thing is that i think as a function of meta science one primary thing that people have been calling for is transparency so when people are making claims or suggesting new ways to do things they're showing their receipts so automatically they people can actually evaluate the work that they're doing. So I think these things are already kind of happening. But one side part of this is this idea that critiques are not being cited. Um, and maybe that's true because quite often when you're reading papers, it seems to be a lot of one-way traffic thinking everyone's, everyone agrees with this when that might not necessarily be the case. So that's one sort yeah. of side point of this that maybe I agree with that certain critiques are not being published but well, again you can, you, can, you can certainly make the argument that that even even if it isn't any good it very much is within accepted non-meta-scientific practice to say we are going to use theory a we fully acknowledge the criticism of theory a exists in this here paper b and i know that because i've been paper b fucking million times <laughs> in in non in non-meta-scientific work you know what i mean so people yeah. say, and to, to, to my way of thinking, what they're doing is they're saying, we're going to do this the wrong way, but we accept that hair, hairy dickhead over here, this loud Heather's prick, we accept that he has got some opinion on this and it should be included here for the sake of completion. Now, that's scientific practice and people who don't know what they're doing uh, don't really, I mean, in, in the context of which we're talking about, uh, are doing physiological experimentation and data analysis and reporting without knowing what it is or what it means or, in fact, anything about it at all, really, in a lot of ways. Um, and they can manage it. People who are as far from uh, frontline, uh, you know, weighty thoughts about the health of the field <laughs> in general are capable of managing, uh, uh, they are capable of citing their critics. So, I think probably everyone should be. I mean, if the, basically, if the crap researchers are doing it, what excuse do you have not to be even acknowledging the fact 
that there is potential criticisms of what you're working on. In a lot of cases, though, it's peer reviewers forcing their hand going, have you considered Heather's and his sympathovagal obituary? You must cite the obituary. Um, well, that's likely, and it's also likely that a lot of it is just reflexive shit, as in that's, they're, they're going, we're going to do this because we did it last time. Um, yeah. And last time we looked at this particular paper and we found a citation that said, we're going to use A, but B exists, so we'll just copy the fuck that down and see, yeah. see whether or not that makes sense. But at the, at the at the very least, it is it, it it is it is formally inclusive of a different idea. Yeah, mm. and I I think we can consider that to be pretty normative. I mean, if you do that for every single thing in any given paper, you'll just never stop citing. But if we're talking <laughs> if we're talking about central discussions of, I mean, in this case, pre-registration, right? If we're talking about a central discussion of that. And there is straightforward criticism of it that is published in a real journal by obviously real competent people. That should be going in as well. Look, mm. I've never been. It's. I, I hope I, I. I don't want to tread in any landmines here. I've never been particularly excited about the formal mechanisms of pre-registration outside of registered reports. Okay. For, okay. for the simple fact that there's, first of all, I mean, it's it's extra steps without any guarantee that they will necessarily be followed. And at the time everyone was keen on this, uh, I was looking to some degree at least at dodgy clinical trials. And there's absolutely no question whatsoever that the pre-registration of clinical trials still permits a, just an astonishing amount of collective dodginess for yeah. reasons that we've probably gone into. And I don't know, pick all the prime numbered episodes and probably <laughs> some shit like that. Um, or, or go back to the um, go, go back to the, the work from the Gold Egg Group at Oxford um, where we did the episodes with Hank. Um, God, I turned into an American. I just got Henry Hank. Um, <laughs> it's like who, who, Henry Drysdale. Yes, episode something. Who eighty? Uh, uh, yeah, a while ago, right? Um, I mean, that should give you an idea of just exactly how well a formal system of being able to do this has worked within uh, very expensive uh, RCT-driven important medical research, which the answer is questionably at best. So, any kind of self-enforced version of being able to do this is, yeah. Also, bear in mind, my experience of meta-science is largely coloured by the understanding and pursuit of dickheads. And that it isn't, <laughs> it isn't about, I haven't spent a lot of time working, I think a lot of the time that in general, the sort of prevention and understanding of QRPs touches far more papers, far more general scientific practice than my work ever has, right? Mm. But the whole, I've also never been in a position to force anyone to do anything about it because no one's ever psychotic enough to allow me to run a journal. <laughs> I mean, Daniel, what is my screen name that I've chosen today? <laughs> Colonic Hyper Nightmare. There you go. Yeah, anyone, for, for those- anyone who names anyone who names their the internal podcast chat window colonic hyper nightmare <laughs> probably shouldn't There's be clue. running your journal. 
So in other words, like a lot of this stuff is a lot of this stuff passed me by in terms of actually doing work on it. I was always interested in the nature of dodgy fuckers, and mm. one of one of the reasons for that was very straightforward. It's something's it's something's completely mathematically impossible. What you're looking at obviously isn't real. Black and white. I doesn't that up? Yeah, there's there's much less. Um, you you don't have to really talk about. Uh, you don't really have to talk about the, the sort of mitigation of it in the sense of we're not really sure whether or not this is a good idea. Everyone agrees it's a terrible idea that um, work that's demonstrably inaccurate should exist in the first place. This is why I've been so interested in if I was still doing uh, this work all the time. There's just so much to be done right now with uh, paper mills, uh, oh. yellow journals. Um, yellow journals, plenty, define that. I haven't heard that term before. Um well, I think of it. There's 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 a lot of there's a lot of fringe journals now, like a lot, and some of them have just sort of sat around for long enough that they are somewhat indistinguishable from larger but less well known big box open access journals. The journals that I thought total, you started to see actual real papers going into uh, journals that got a track record of total bullshit. Hmm. Um. So there's starting to be this sort of grey literature. Um, I think it is in the tradition of yellow journalism, um, not because I think ah uh, yeah, not, yeah not because I I, I think it has a uh, you know love liver deficiency or something. <laughs> it's, it's, it's it's you know there's there's a sort of a continuum of honesty there. And this there's an enormous amount of work to be done on just bullshit. So I never really had to nail a lot of colours to the masks when it came to like like a lot of QRP stuff. Anyway, look, we, it's the first one. We've already got bogged down. What else you got? Okay, number two, fast and mm, fast and broken criticism. So the definition is a quick, superficial, dismissive, and or mocking style of scientific criticism. Um, and the recommended practice was to uh, undertake careful critical evaluation with civility and mutual respect. So this comes back down to the the tone wars how do yeah, we actually I mean, it comes down to what you would what you would what you were just saying before i mean you can still find if you look not very hard you can still find especially in social sciences some circa 10 15 years ago they're kind of very obviously p-hack very obviously nonsense very obviously something that has no bearing or relevance on humanity it's doing nothing but employing someone in a room uh who who has copy of spss you know, it's, it's, it's keeping. It's that's 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 all it's doing. It's of absolutely no consequence to the human species whatsoever. Um, you can still find that now. And what you say before is everyone was very defensive when a lot of meta scientific uh, sort of research areas, the threads of those research areas, when they got started, everyone was very defensive. Well, I mean, if there's any sort of empathy here, a lot of people very frustrated over a very long period of time. It's not nice to think that you sunk a lot of time, energy, and effort into doing something properly when you see what is very transparently, obviously bullshit being rewarded around you. Um, I don't really have that emotional response to it, but I can understand why other people do. You also probably got to quite strongly differentiate between one, formal criticism and assessment going into journals. And two, the culture of people talking shit on the internet. And 
Presumably, there's limits to civility that are in both, but I really doubt that they're the same. You know? We there's, some pretty, there's been some pretty nasty stuff printed in peer-reviewed journals. <laughs> well, that is, that, is cert- that is certainly true. Uh, but the I mean, traditional nastiness was always very formalized and always invariably resulted in someone like getting seriously nobbled by something, getting some kind of lack of access not promoted, papers spiked, uh, blacklisted from journal, etc., without anything being said to anyone, and it was always very civilized. I'm very leery in general of anyone who is pro-civility out of context because okay. I've encountered that everywhere as a way of trying to control and police conversations. And it's very difficult to be a. It's very difficult to be reform-minded when you are not allowed to occasionally lose your damn mind. I mean, I wonder in the sort of quest for more civility. I wonder how uncivil the people who are in favour of that are willing to become. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I mean, I, 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 I get it, and people, but in, in general, I have, the, I have the tremendous privilege, I suppose, in this situation. If anyone's being a dick, I've just had the facility to walk away and ignore it and not give a shit for a very, very long time. So it's possible that when it comes to like people being, people being a dick is a, a significant drawback here, I just don't get to see or feel the consequences of the dickishness. Hmm. Okay, let's move to point three, and this is the idea of overplaying replication. So this is assuming that replication is essential to science and that in- indexes the truth. Now, I want to point out something interesting here in that uh, this, I've seen a lot of discussion about um, uh, positionality statements, and I have not seen this in any journals that I read, um, but this is the first time I've actually seen a positionality statement uh, written, and in this statement, uh, the uh, in this statement, Mark uh, states his philosophy of science, and he states that it's closest to perspective realism. And I think when it comes to this idea of uh, overplaying replication or the importance of replication, a lot of it does depend on your philosophy of science. Some different types of philosophy of science, this is quite key, and um, I think. This is one of those things that it just comes down to how you think science should be done, whether it's right or wrong is, is, is a different story. The recommended practice here is to, to qualify and contextualize claims about the centrality and role about rep- rep- replication in science. So I guess it's basically stating that I believe, yeah. Something, something that I've, I've, I've thought for a while, and we've never had a chance to discuss this, is that I think the, I think the era of really big replications to make a point I think the, the 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 practice of that is something that people consider interesting and useful. It's something that eventually has to pass. You reckon? Yes. Okay. I disagree, but go on. The the reason is pretty straightforward. There are there are tremendously consequential papers in the world. And it's very difficult to know what they are until you 
see what they do over time. You see till you see what results from them. And I'm not just talking about um, well, whether or not it's cited, but whether or not it results in additional ideas, whether or not it results in follow up, whether it, it has like significant effect on practice or a significant effect on you know people or the environment or some other large macro factor. But I've seen a lot of big replications where something has been replicated like at 10 times the size of an initial experiment. And it looks like something that took a, a lot of money and a lot of people and a lot of time. And I've looked at the initial paper and thought, well, I don't give a shit about that at all. Um, maybe it's not just a question of replicating the right things in terms of like, okay, well, we've made, we've made the point. Um, maybe what's required here is a better and more formalized system of going from like actually replicating things that genuinely matter. Now, that's just my opinion on things that do and don't matter, right? But it's I'm I I haven't seen a a really big effort, a sort of concomitant effort to be able to recognize and understand what needs to be replicated you know this is some shit that we saw these things some some it's especially uh, uh the research areas where the data already exists where things are easy to do this shit could be knocked up in an afternoon you know out of out of so a data set for some honest student left in a bin on the way out right? <laughs> does it does it need to be is it a good use of resources to massively replicate it there have been times where i haven't been sure so it would it would be nice if there was more maturity in the ability to pick the targets. I know that um, Pedro Saga has written a paper on this exact question. What do we replicate? He's made the great point that resources are finite. We can't replicate everything. Yeah, you can't replicate every study that's been published. And him and his co-authors put together some ideas on how do we actually decide what to re- replicate. I think I was that. That's a really good discussion because yeah, we can't replicate everything. Some yeah. things should. Well, it's just, it would it would be. Uh, I mean, yeah, I, d- I think it's quite an obvious point to make, and someone who knows more about it than me actually working through it would be a, a reasonable discussion. Um, but I remember about this could be probably ten, maybe fifteen years ago. There was something in, in a, something that was science journalist science journalismy and fancy. And I think it was Samin's answer uh, to the question, if we could do, maybe, ah, oh, I don't know. I think it was hers. I think it was her answer to, suddenly we have infinite time and resources to be able to do an experiment. And the answer to that was replicate everything. And other people were like, oh, we, you know, we'll, we'll fly a bucket of frogs straight into a black hole and shit like that. They're <laughs> like, this, the sheer ordinariness of the answer replicate everything stuck out to me. And I think that set something that I've remembered ever since, which is that that was going into a list of, of things that were equally as impossible as fly a bucket of frogs into a black <laughs> hole. Right? I mean, I hate mm. the idea, Dan, of all the clever, motivated people who would like science that has very obvious structural problems to be better over time to be stuck replicating some dumb shit that doesn't really affect the rest of the world or even the rest of science even the rest of a local research or topic area mm. you know 
I mean, it, it feels like if, if people haven't made, if they haven't figured out there's a problem from the existing substantial replications, I I don't know how many more are going to actually do the trick. Um, more formalization in systems, please, and less sort of general complaining. Yeah. Um, All right. Next next point. Yeah, point keep four. Going. Unspecified replication rate targets. Assuming that a replication rate is too low without specifying an acceptable rate. Uh, so we've- I don't know how possible, don't know how possible that is. Well, th- how this comes a, to this how idea How long is a piece of string? Go on. But yeah, I mean, th- this has come back to this idea that we have these large replication pro- um, um, projects and they've gone, oh, only 50% of papers replicated. This is too low. So it's this idea of what what, what is too low. I never thought of this as an issue. Um, and at the same time, I think it's very difficult to actually define what is too low. But surely, when fifty percent of of of, can- of key cancer studies do not replicate, you have to go something's up here. Oh, I but think I'm not I, sure I what. Think it, that- I think it was lower than that. If you talk about the Amgen study, it was certainly less than fifty percent. Oh, was it um, okay? The, yeah, I mean, you, you, there's the only, coin flip. There's, if it's a coin flip, there's, un- there's only really heuristics that go into something like that. You know, you have an expectation that's built out of like how explicit. Can, how explicitly or exactly can could a method be written down in the first place? Um, what's the what's the um, precise uh, what's the precise ability to uh, to do that? You know, we've got the same code, same data set. It should be a hundred percent, and everything that you move away from that in terms of your ability to specify something with the methodology that's available, or for the world to be repeatable, or any number of other things is is going to pull it longer. So. I don't know. That one feels a bit soft. I think that's the first one where my response is a bit shrug and not a bit kind of like, that's a pretty good point. Okay. Next one. Point five, meta bias. A bias towards explaining the replication crisis in terms of researcher bias. Um, again, th- this is one of those things that, yeah, researcher bias has been cited as, as one of the main issues to- towards a replication crisis, but it's arguing that there are other factors. And I think a lot of people are arguing there's a lot of factors and researcher bias is one of those things. So I'm not so sure about this one. I don't think anyone's saying that researcher bias is the core reason behind, the the only reason or the main reason behind behind the replication crisis. So I guess it's this idea that the researcher bias has been overemphasized. Yeah. I mean- I'm not sure because, because yeah. Look, one thing I want to get back to is the reason that I like the work that you've been doing in terms of Sprite and Grimmer is that the numbers don't add up. It doesn't matter what the motives are or are not of the researchers, whether there is something dodgy going on or whether it's wrong. It doesn't matter. If the numbers don't add up, it doesn't matter why the numbers don't add up. It just matters that they don't add up. Yeah, I know. And that was one of the, the whole appeals about the- that was one of the whole appeals about it as a topic area in the first place, Dan, is the fact that the, the, the signal is very strong. Maybe there's not a lot of signals to find, but like I said, mm. this, is, this, this is a small percentage at best of a broader field of, of, of problematic stuff. Yeah? I mean, I don't believe these figures for a second, but if you go to any given survey paper on where they ask people, and there's been probably a dozen of these over a period of, um, I think they started to become popular in the late 80s, and the last big one was about 2005, I think Martinson, 2005. Um, how much have you done the dodgy thing? 
Um, oh yeah, those ones. I don't believe those numbers. <laughs> no, I don't. I don't believe them either. But at the very least, people are far more willing to admit to the mildly dodgy thing. And we can just just presume on what we know about human nature and the the way that people achieved tasks for money. <laughs> that um, stuff that I've worked on is vanishingly small percentage of a uh, broader series of problems. I'm not sure what I think about this, and I think the squishiness for me is based around how you collectively understand the word bias. Exactly what it is. Um, I mean, at the very least, splitting it into conscious and unconscious bias is is a hell of a good start. There's a lot of people who are motivated to p-hack the bejesus out of something out of of a kind of uh, good-natured ignorance. Right? So... That is a more, so when you think of someone having a bias, you don't think of them as having a deliberate bias. You think of them as having a a, a kind of innate position taken against something and for something else. So, I mean, if we're making a determination about unconscious bias, fill fill your boots. What do people really think deep down? I don't know. Neither do you. Um. At the very least, they were just looking through this quickly. There's a there's a bone thrown to the old multiverse analysis at the end here, and ah, I wish people I wish people did more of those. Um, that's a very underappreciated technique for being able to overspecify everything. That would I think so. A few more pieces of software and a little bit more attention to. Um, Multiverse and robustness analysis hmm. would be a, would be a particularly good idea. Um, yeah, I'm all for that. Right? Clear, clear some of this fuss up in a big hurry. Come on, keep going through it. We're making progress. We're making progress. Right, no, okay, it feels like it looks maybe we're not. <laughs> um, uh, number six: the bias reduction assumption, focusing on selective reporting as a primary form of research bias, and assuming that it can that it can be reduced without increasing other forms of bias. So the recommended practice is to consider other forms of researcher bias, such as selective questioning, researcher commitment bias, um, and uh, re- to reveal different research perspectives through robustness analysis and researcher positionality statements, which the author has done themselves. Um, I like this, yeah, you, you touched upon this, I like this right. idea of robustness analysis actually demonstrating no matter how we chop up the data, um, the results are the same. Um, one thing I've seen quite, which has been quite useful is people posting shiny apps of their work going, have at it. No matter how you do your analysis, the results seem to be consistent. I like this kind of approach yeah, there. Yeah, it's cute as so, fuck. But honestly, Dan, I mean, it's, it's the year is 2023. That should be the paper. The shiny app is the paper. Yeah. Yeah. Dear Wyatt. Yeah, honestly. That's, sure. Yeah. If you want to, if you want to play with it, I mean that you, you should write it. You, you should get a hundred words for introduction, and I'll give you two hundred for the discussion because I'm such a generous <laughs> man. And then you should get uh, the data. five thousand for the method and the shiny app because the data and results in it. That's a much better journal, because um, you know it's uh, the data. The data is the product. Your speculation that comes along with the data is a separate thing entirely. Um, honestly, man, no, no, no real notes on this. This is you could, it's 
I think it's very if you if you've worked with people who have been if you've seen methodological horseshit happen in person, I think is a natural assumption to make that uh, a lot of selective reporting is going on. If you've just seen how normal it is in a lot of different places, but maybe that is people who have had bad experiences letting that color their understanding of other people's work. Yeah, um, I like I like that one. Okay. Point seven, devaluing exploratory hypothesis tests. This is the idea of develop, devaluing an exploratory result as being more tentative than a confirmatory result without considering other relevant issues, such as the quality of associated theory, methods, analysis, and transparency. This is a common thing which has been mentioned, this idea that the um, meta-science reforms have had a big focus on elevating um hypothesis-driven tests and devaluing exploratory hypothesis tests. And um, again, maybe it's me in my bubble or the sort of journals that I've been reading, but I haven't found that myself. I guess there are certain subfields within psychology where perhaps there is that you know, these these exploratory tests are completely devalued and you, you can't get a high-impact paper. Not in my experience, but... Um, Again, maybe this is probably colored by my own experiences here. I don't think this is a thing, um, but at the same time, I found that whenever I do open science talks, that th- there are some skeptical people who are thinking this. So one of the first things I do is going is saying, "Hey, I'm not I'm not doing this to devalue exploratory tests. Exploratory tests are important because you need them to actually generate the hypothesis that we're testing." And then people uh, seem to be satisfied with that. But yeah, your thoughts, James? Um. I mean, this is, yeah, this feels like a bit of a low-rent one, honestly. I don't think that's a, it's, except in some very specific circumstances, it's no, it's no barrier, no matter what's said about something like this, it's no barrier to the actual, like, practical process of producing exploratory stuff. I mean, all you, all you could ever really want is that people note the way in which something is exploratory. Um. The point, of course, is well made that an exploratory analysis that done with good reasons on data that's well collected is not the fucking same as something that's had the living shit explored out of it. <laughs> yeah? yeah, I mean, a lot of the time, those things are determinations that we uh, we don't, we don't get to make. This it gets into mm. it gets into a crystal ball problem. Um, you know, so a bit bit sort of bit sort of string lengthening. Yeah. I don't, okay. I don't mind it as a point. I just, I'm not, I'm not sure what the uh, the eventual, um, you know, acknowledge that some exploratory results can be less tentative than some confirmatory results. All right, acknowledged. There you go. Um, yeah. <laughs> done. <laughs> done. Agreed. Po- po- point eight: presuming questionable research practices are problematic. So the definition here is presuming that questionable research practices are always problematic research practices, and the recommended practice is to acknowledge that only some QRPs are potentially problematic in specific research situations, and only some potential problematic research practices are actually problematic under some conditions. I mean, I think this comes down to how you define a questionable research practice, isn't it? Well, I mean, the the, the, the language is not particularly well chosen, if that's the case. It's like acknowledge that something you just call questionable isn't that fucking questionable. Is so, Would you probably come up with a different name for it then? Um, trickier, trickier, trickier than it sounds. Yes. Um, no matter... 
this is this is the this is the problem with with having something that's generally normative. You know, go on, talk. I'll give I'll give an example. So an example of a an acceptable questionable research practice is some would say that or well, one questionable research practice has been failing or has been defined as failing to report all of the study's dependent measures. And this is basically saying that if you don't do that, it's not necessarily a bad thing, um, that it may not indicate p-hacking if there are good reasons to exclude the measures from the original research report and if the excluded measures are irrelevant to the final research conclusions. So, again, like, yes, but, I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm not sorry, sure how Sorry, sorry, sorry. So, if you're leaving out part of the data set or part of an observation that's wildly irrelevant, I don't, th- I don't think that's a QRP. Honestly, I think it's some other shit. Yeah, that's just. I don't think you get to call yeah. it. I don't think you get to call it that. So maybe what this is pushing back is just like the, the maximalization of the sort of prescriptivism here. Because um, you know, people have spent many, many years being very pissy about what is and isn't included in any given thing. And what if you force people to write about something as a narrative, then they're going to leak pieces out. And a mm. lot of the time, what they're leaving out is probably because it has absolutely no business being there in the first place. Yeah. So, it, you know, it comes back space, to the definition. Space is not... People, people. I mean, as much as digital space is as practically infinite as we're going to get, you try, try getting a journal with a hard word limit to agree with you and you'll find out where people fucking leave stuff out. <laughs> yeah. Because, no, the, it's, because it's, they it's, literally have to to get through the day. So... Yeah, maybe. Uh, so I, this is like well, what's happening in common practice, and the answer to that is I don't know if people are being too prescriptive about stuff like that, and if they are, they should probably stop. Yeah, it's, it's we've Point. we've got enough we've got enough scolds and weirdos in the old guard without meta scientists <laughs> turning into. Let's not bring this into the new. Well. <laughs> you know. All right. Get Point number nine. Go, sir. Focus, focusing on knowledge accumulation. The definition here is conceiving knowledge accumulation as the primary objective of science without considering A, the role of specified ignorance, or B, different objectives in other philosophies of science. I think within this definition, this brings up the main issue here, that this comes down to what your philosophy of science is for many philosophies of science, um, particularly the ones that a lot of meta-scientists hold, the, accumul- the f- knowledge accumulation is important so i'm not sure whether this is pointing to or arguing for the need of of, of um, positionality statements or yeah but this just, just depends on your philosophy of science well it also it also depends on what you're, you're looking for at any given point in time i mean a lot of the time a very acceptable result about any given thing rather than we know knowledge is we don't know knowledge, which isn't the same as we are particularly uh, ignorant about something. Um, you can you can sort of look at the the dimension. The, the different perspectives on this seem to fill out sort of different dimensions of knowability in the first place. Uh, I have absolutely no problem with this uh, this being specified whatsoever. Yeah, you know, this. I mean, you you start off with the uh, the, the the one that they've given here from uh, Uncle Brian. The primary objective of science as a discipline is to accumulate knowledge about nature. But it does it that to I mean, I don't even know if you need to bring philosophy into it. I mean that that leaves a lot out. I mean it's a it's a throwaway line at the start of presumably some very broad document, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, right. It comes it comes, it comes down to philosophy. Uh, yes. Point ten. Homogenizing science. 
focusing on specific approaches as the scientific method. And the recommended practice is to diversify membership in the meta-science community and embrace scientific diversity and pluralism. One experience I've had, which has been very eye-opening, is uh, I've been part of a local um, open science um, um, uh, committee in my department. And uh, we have included people from, from different research perspectives. And one thing that I haven't come across is open science in qualitative research. It's just not something that I've encountered because I don't do it. So it was been, it's been very interesting actually hearing how open science is done in these specific research fields. So mm. I guess because a lot of the discussion has focused on more qualitative science, it can give the impression that open science can be applied here. So I don't think there has been specific exclusion of saying this is the way, but maybe the impression can be given if all the examples for instance, on how to actually do these things are given in a more quantitative way. So, yeah, like, look, another one of those things, that, like, yeah, I, I, I agree, but I'm not sure how much of an issue it is. Yeah. When when you get to the end of a list like this, and there's uh, there's obviously, like, great, great big slabs of, like, the pillars that are involved with the basis of knowledge construction in the first place are going up. Um, you 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 say really big stuff to it's <laughs> really big stuff to last, and man, do I have uh, do I have absolutely nothing sensible to add to that whatsoever? I'm just I'm just over here being narrow, gang. I've got my narrow on. Yeah. Well, <laughs> there you go. My, you, for the first time, you have you have I'm, no opinion, James. I'm this stuck, is I'm it's taking a hundred and oh, I'm out of opinions. I'm out of energy. I'm out of time. I'm nearly out of feet. Better better bring your opinions to Frankfurt, James. Oh, I'm going to have what, so uh, many opinions at Frankfurt. Um, I believe I believe our um this this very episode I'm planning to release in in a couple of days. Um, so if you're listening, um, then I believe that the Frankfurt show is going to be shown live. So it's going to be in the evening Central European time, and so people can can watch that. So it's good a good time for if you're if you're in Europe um, in the morning if you're in the States, and uh, um, a bad time if you're in Australia. Aussies once again left <laughs> left in the lurch when it comes to time stuff. So you can hear us doing a live show, our first ever live show, and during our whole trip in Frankfurt, we're just we're just we're we're going to film everything, aren't we, James? We're just we're going to be. It's the the tremendous lurch back into, I can't believe I'm actually going to see your fucking Another swollen guy. head in a couple of weeks. It's almost, <laughs> it's almost too much, to, it's almost too much to contemplate. Yeah. I'm gonna, I need to go and have so, a lie down. <laughs> Th- thanks for listening to this episode. We'll be back again soon. This is also, we, we will, yes, what he just said, but also- more more papers like this, please. I I, yes. I, I like the um. But I, I I like the idea that that this is like the parameters of this can be examined, yeah. And the the point in something like this is like if if you read something like this and you end up sitting around feeling like a kicked dog, you really are you really are missing the point, yeah. Mm. I think more than anything else, it, it, there's a there's a tendency to feel righteous in scientific reform. This never sat particularly well with me. Um, I don't even when, when you're talking about people who've done something exto- astonishingly dodgy. Uh, even then, it's very dangerous to feel 
righteous. Um, so it's in, anything in general that's that's pushing back against the whole idea of like we've got a, we've got a solution and the rest of you need to follow it and it's all very prescriptive. In in general, I think we could say that's something we support, can't we, Dan? We're behind it. Yeah, we're, we're behind it. We're behind it. Foot soldiers and the great army of disagreeing with the disagreeable. <laughs> Thanks for listening. See you in Frankfurt for the people that are joining us live or in person or yeah. live. However, doing it. Well, if you join live, bye bye. If you join live, you can have beer. But if you join on the internet, you'll have to bring your own. Tough. Ha. Win win. See you later. <laughs>